0: Okay, good evening, everyone. Good to see you all. So uh, we're going to be taking a look at 1 Corinthians 11. We'll wrap up a few details with the head coverings as such, and then we'll dig into the argument that is really more important because the head coverings reflect the reality, and the reality is what we've lost sight of. So the reality is where we want to spend most of our time. Let's open up with prayer, and then we'll wrap up loose ends and and then dig into the real meat of our session tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask your blessings upon this time that we spend in your word. May you make it fruitful and prosperous in us and in the lives of those in which we are involved. We pray your special blessing upon us. As men, that we might properly understand the nature of your creation of man and woman and our different roles uh, that you would have us fulfill for the glory of your church and for the reflection of your son and his love for the church. We pray that at this time of Advent and Christmas, you would bless all the families of our congregation and prepare our hearts that they might receive Christ to dwell richly within us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so just, I think the methodology I've landed upon would be to reread the section in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And then what I'd like to do is go back to Genesis and just do some noticing. Noticing is when you look at stuff that you've probably seen before, but you'll notice uh, different things that are, and I'll help I'll point some of those out that are going to be a little different than maybe what you've thought or maybe what you've heard or maybe even what you've seen before. So we'll spend some time doing that. 1 Corinthians eleven two. 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, a question was brought up, what about bishops or priests or other clergymen who wear uh, head coverings? So if you go back to Leviticus, in fact, um, you'll see that the high priest and the other priests were instructed to wear head coverings. Exodus, uh, let me see, I've got it in my notes here somewhere. Too many notes. Exodus 29.6 and Exodus 39 talk about head covering. So it's hard to represent the full gamut of uh, feelings and practices in regard to this in terms of the church, And it's tough to know when and where clergy did wear head coverings and how late. Some evidence points to it being really rather late that head coverings came into the church itself, maybe even like 8th or ninth century. But who knows? It's just not something they're particularly focused on. I think the most general and broadly applicable rule would be that clergy were exempted and they were exempted as, as special representatives of God unto the people. That's So I think that that's as close to a general rule as I was able to find. You'll find places where it's in clear uh, distinction from the Old Testament, them wearing, and the, the line of argumentation is now that Christ has come and our head has been revealed, then clergy shouldn't wear anything on their heads. Uh, so you find that kind of logic. But elsewhere you'll find, no, the as I mentioned earlier, the clergy, to use our language, in the stead of Christ, and so wear a head covering. Frequently that head covering, especially early on, if you go back to the Old Testament, more resembles a crown than it does any kind of hood or veil. That's another distinction you find is where, if Paul's talking about head coverings, he's talking specifically in this context about like hoods or veils. And never have, uh, clergy really wear hood or veil, but always um, anything from like the, what are they called, the yarmouks or whatever, the little tiny uh, skull cap thing, um, or something that more resembles a turban or a crown, a miter, that sort of thing. Then it's noted, too, in various times and places, even today, where clergy wear uh, head coverings in service, that at certain parts of the liturgies in the East and in the West, those are removed out of deference for this, uh, this teaching and this reality. So that's the best I could come up with on that, uh, you know, best I could research and discover for you. Not a super clear answer. Maybe the clearest is that clergy have by and large been seen as exempt from this take that for what it's worth. And, and I know that, that that's a great question and a difficult one to answer, as it turns out. Okay, so that's, uh, for every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. And this was a second question that came up, is what about head coverings for women outside of ch- a church, um, if they're uh, praying or prophesying, and that's that is the general consensus. Even uh, I, I believe amongst Luther, there's a Luther quote you can find where he basically said, it's basically the general consensus is anywhere where women are praying or prophesying, they should have their heads covered. That's the general application. Some take that uh, to mean all the time, and so you will find Christian cultures where women's head are co- heads are covered all the time out of modesty. <laughs> Others only where they're praying or prophesying, that kind of thing. And again, prophesying doesn't mean predicting the future or saying something like, hey, God told me to say this. Um, Prophesying would be a very broad category for any kind of riffing on the Word of God. (laughs) Talking about, applying, considering uh, the Word of God. And that can take on all kinds of different instances. In the ancient world, in the church service or outside of the church service. Mostly outside, and uh, that would be the cleanest way to think about it. But again, it's just—it's really hard to look at history and say it's like this in all times and all places, because it just isn't with almost anything. That's the reality. So I wish I could provide you really neat, clean answers here, but I can't. Okay, then on to six. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. That's something to pay attention to. Along with, you know, as we're getting past the head coverings to the structure that lies underneath this headship, where God is the head of Christ, who is the head of the man, who is the head of the woman. And then here, that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So now we're popping the hood, as it were, and looking at the engine, looking at the order of creation itself. And Paul's going to go on in this vein, verse 8 and following, for man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So there's a primacy of man. And um, even in English, it's retained man and woman. Uh, in, in the Hebrew, it's ish for man and isha for woman. So there's woman is derived from man. And then 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. And he says because of the angels. We talked about that last week. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. So Paul sees this kind of beautiful asymmetry here. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you? That if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone's is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. That is, we won't. Uh, if anyone's going to disagree with us, we have no such practice, like unveiling ourselves. Nor do the churches of God. Okay, so this final part is that a woman's hair. Paul's making an argument that the that the length of a woman's hair itself serves as a kind of natural covering, and then indicates that she should wear covering on her head when she's uh, praying or prophesying. And so that's that's his rationale there. A man's hair is short; it's not his glory, and therefore that even indicates naturally indicates that he should pray and prophesy with his head uncovered. But that's a rather minor point. The major points are, say, um, verses 7 through 12 and verse 3. Those are the places where we really get the order of creation as a structure. Okay, any thoughts or comments before we jump back to Genesis and, and take a look there. My yes sir. question.
1: So he's not really implementing anything here. It's just kind of like that's the way it already is or it's already kind of playing out that way or is he
0: Yeah, I think he's I think he's nervous. He's probably hearing reports that this kind of thing is going on or might be going on. Okay. Mhm. And so he wants to get ahead of it. I see. Yeah, I think that's I think that that's probably an accurate representation of what the pastoral impulse is here. I, I mean, for what it's worth, and I don't, I don't know that it's worth all that much, but a pagan practice at the time, Roman practice at the time, and you can find art that depicts this. Like they'd take the extra flaps of the toga. So when men were doing uh, their pagan worship, they'd take the extra flaps of the toga and pull it up over their head, a kind of hood or veil and um, pagan women would pray with their heads uncovered. So it is a reversal of that. Uh, so in a sense, it's countercultural, which also really mitigates against that argument that, um, no, the, the veiling of women and the covering of their heads and the making sure the man's head is uncovered is some sort of first century cultural thing. It's like, no, the first century cultural norm and Moray was the opposite of that. So this is a countercultural. hey, they don't look at, even in their worship, though they don't know what they're doing, they're, they have subverted the order of creation, even in the nature of their worship.
1: Pastor, I, I had a question. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: You've probably heard this many times before, but like in the movies that we see, mm-hmm. Jesus always has this long hair. And mm-hmm. I, 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 I've just thought from reading this, before well you know they probably got wrong they're probably just like you know having a little fun they figured maybe that's not really long that's just kind of mid-length i'd be curious to to know what they actually did back then were they were they shaving their heads and then leaving the you know the little bits on the sides long
0: almost almost certainly not that uh probably probably and i i this kind of research in my estimation just isn't worth very much because it just sort of depends on what little scrap of information you gleaned from some source that who, you know, who knows how reliable it is. And then you've built this theory, but it is a general consensus. I, I believe that the hair um, was worn by Jewish males of the first century shorter than is commonly depicted in our movies. Be, be that as it may, and even if that weren't correct, um there's not, no one ever finds in St. Paul or otherwise, like, okay, anything past 12 inches, let's say, is, constitutes long hair. R- really, what constitutes long hair is when one starts looking effeminate. So that it could be different for any person. I mean, <laughs> it's just, the, and I know it's kind of like, um, I don't know, What's the difference between art and pornography? I know it when I see it. Um, that might be the same kind of thing. What's the difference between long hair that's acceptable and long hair that's not? You know when you see it, um, one is uh, effeminate, the other is not. So I don't think that there is a hard and fast rule. There and there are exceptions to. I mean, there are exceptions to the length of hair, obviously, in the Nazarite vow. So Samson, like the manliest dude of the. Entire Old Testament, probably, uh, long hair. And there's exceptions to the head coverings, too, as you look to the priesthood of the Old Testament they all have. So, again, I don't. it's just not going to be as clear-cut, as white and black, as simple as we want it to be. There's just exceptions that sort of prove the general truth, the general norm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, great question. Okay, anything else we want to want to chat about all right then let's jump back to Genesis and I'd like to because Paul is really basing his argument on the order of creation and I think we've done this or done something like this in this class before but you know it's so it's so novel (laughs) so countercultural if you're like me it's gonna take some time to sink in and to challenge uh, even what even what you've been you know what you've been taught or what you've grown up thinking i know that that's been the case for me as i've read and reread these scriptures it's like every single time another layer kind of comes off and i see it differently than i once did okay so it would be good to start at genesis 126 even though i don't think that there's anything particularly earth-shaking here for us to consider. It is the the bedrock of anthropology. So, verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This, um, especially around the Reformation, the image and likeness of God Gets limited down to righteousness, that that it means nothing more and nothing less than righteousness, and that's that's a problem. I mean, it's a historical problem because nobody read it that way, (laughs) and it's also a problem because if Jesus said let us, I mean, if God said let us create man in our righteousness or let us create a man who is morally like us, that's one thing. But to say image and likeness is very much another. And I think what we ought to do, and I'm not alone in this, um, there's a, oh, what's his name? Oh, shoot, I just lost it. Mm, a, uh, an LCMS pastor, I'll think of his name in just a minute, um, uh, Bernal Eckhart, who's done some research on this and gathered up some church father quotes on this. Uh, image and likeness, there's absolutely no reason to not think of that f- as physical, we're so used to thinking of God as looking like nothing, but I'm not sure that that's exactly biblical. Well, we also conceive of the soul as being like a little ball of light or a little wispy ghost like Casper or something like that, which where did we get that from? So I mean the the reality is your soul looks like your body <laughs> and is recognizable. And so to have Adam made in the image and likeness of God, I think is particularly helpful at first to conceive of holistically. So think of it holistically. Think of it in the maximum possible way. Is righteousness included? Absolutely. Morality included? Absolutely. Characteristics of God made small in man? Absolutely. Uh, We are made to be friends and companions of God, uh, no doubt about it. Um, But we should think of that and really press the envelope of thinking that from uh, physical to emotional to psychological to spiritual, the whole gambit. It's all the image and likeness of God. A little mirror image would be a good way of thinking about it. That's going to help you understand St. Paul and how St. Paul isn't contradicting uh, this passage, but is really expanding our understanding of this passage in First Corinthians 11. So let us make man in our image. Now, you'll notice if you have an ESV, maybe it's in other versions too, the little superscript one above man, and that'll direct you to over. The Hebrew word for man, Adam, is the generic term for mankind and becomes the proper name Adam. Interesting. (laughs) Interesting. It is. It is worth contemplating that Adam is the one who's in view here. Because Adam, let me me ask you this, does God have boobs or not? So it is interesting to consider that in the first place, it is Adam, and then as, as Eve is derived from Adam, she reflects that image and glory as well, but in a distinct way. So what you're going to see as we read along is male and female, he created them. But what you're going to see Paul do is make a distinction. So there is an equality, but there's a distinction and difference. There is male and female are made in the image and likeness of God, but in different ways or in different degrees. And I think that that's self-evidently true, just by virtue of the fact that men and women look different. Does God have boobs? Does God have long hair? Does God have volu- voluptuous lips? <laughs> I mean, right? Or whatever whatever feminine trait we want to mention. Um, so that is worth that is worth considering is just taking it as it reads. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. That Adam and Eve are view, in view, but Adam first and Eve second. That's all I'm putting forward. I'm not saying the woman's excluded. I'm not saying the woman's some kind of alien or some kind of between man and animal. I'm not making any sort of assertion. But I'm saying she is second to Adam's primacy, even here in this text. So then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, both included, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, dominion, from like dominos, lord, Adam and Eve, Adam first, Eve second, were created to have lordship over this entire realm. Already, Adam and Eve are created as over this realm, and insofar as it goes, as little mini-gods, as little mini-representatives of God on earth. That's why he says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. God says, I want a physical copy of myself to rule over this physical domain. Make sense? Okay, so that's a very important thing to realize, um, the honor given to man and woman and the honor given to humanity that we are the visible representatives of God on earth. And our physical, visible constitution reflects his uh, invisible spiritual constitution. But those are two, refle- like we're a reflection of him, a mere reflection. Not him himself, but a reflection of him himself. Does that make sense? Okay, it's also worth noting that God is everywhere, given, since we're all into pronouns these days, God is everywhere in his own self-revelation, given the pronoun he. Always, ever. God's, God's uh, pronoun of choice is he, him. It's just the way it is. I'm sorry. And that has nothing to do with what you've been taught by the feminists, that this is all uh, Moses' bias and uh, Jesus' bias and Paul's bias. No, this, if you believe that the Bible is God's self-revelation, he reveals himself as a he. And then when he gets more specific about it, the first person of the Trinity? Father? Pretty sure that's a he. How about the second? Son? That's a he. Holy Spirit, we might have some guess there. What about uh, Holy Spirit? Well, when we look at the pronouns also, he. So in his oneness, he. And in his persons, he. Thought? Anybody? No? Okay. So again, when he, makes God, when he makes man in his image, who does he make first? Adam. Adam. And Adam is a he. And then the woman is taken from the he and thus shares and participates in that image and likeness. She is Isha because she is taken from the Ish. So then she becomes our glory, whereas man is the glory of Christ. So you can already see these Pauline themes coming through. Um, One more Pauline theme coming through. Uh, Let me... I know that this probably um, isn't exactly what you learned in Sunday school. So take a look at, take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11.7, where we just were. I should have told you to keep a, a bookmark or a finger there. I'm sorry if you already did, you were ahead of me. But now, now notice, notice what Paul says and see that what Paul's saying and what Rhody's saying aren't too far apart here. In fact, I don't think they're at all apart. So, 1 Corinthians eleven seven. 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But if woman is the image and glory of God equal to the man in exactly the same way as the man, then Paul's argument falls apart. Think, think about it. Think if you didn't agree with Paul how you would argue that. I know exactly I'd attack that. I'd say, oh, if the man is the image and the glory of God, Genesis 1, 26 says they both are. You stand corrected, Paul. But that's not the case, that man and woman share the image and likeness of God in precisely the same way. There's a difference there. And that's what St. Paul's pointing out. Or really, rather, I should start saying the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit's pointing out that man is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. She's deriv- derivative. Now, as she is the glory of man, who is the image and glory of God, she participates in that image and glory of God. Thus, the them that's plural in Genesis. If I submit to you, it's impossible to understand Paul apart from this reading. Otherwise, Paul ends up contradicting himself. Yes. yes. For a I think it's later, or maybe three, four, but Can neither uh, male or female? Is that... Have you any kind of change the roads there. Um, so the, the male or fe- the let there not be ne- neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That kind of logic in Paul is specific to our relationship to God in Christ, with a view toward our standing before Him. He doesn't care if you're a man or a woman. He doesn't care if you're a slave or free. He doesn't care if you're a Jew or a Gentile. If you have faith in Christ, you're his son. You're his daughter, let's say. Um, you are—you belong to him and you are redeemed by him and you are welcome into heaven. That's really rather the point of that. There's no deeper anthropology going on there because if there were, it mitigates against everything he's writing here. I, and right, and that's kind of the feminist modern trick is, well, there's ne- in Christ, there's neither male nor female. As if Paul then means to contradict himself here and waste all this ink he's spent differentiating between male and female as Christians and as wearing head coverings or not, as being male or female. So clearly then we're seeing Paul make a different point and a narrower point when he uses that rhetoric. Okay, so keeping a finger here then on 1 Corinthians 11 or a bookmark or something, because inevitably we'll flip back. Let us make, I mean, it literally says, Adam in our image after our likeness, and let them. Now, to me, that just makes so much more sense. Because the Isha is taken from the Ish. Eve is taken from Adam. Let us make, so he says, let us make Adam in our image. Let them, because God's seeing the two as one flesh, and the one flesh as two. In other words, I'm submitting to you that that um, when God was, was writing Genesis 1, he already knew what was going to happen in Genesis 2. I don't think that's too uh, wild of a claim. All right, then the dominion, the lordship, is given to the them... The one who becomes two, that the two can become one. See how God's playing with that. Now, what else is what is this remission of? It's remission of the Trinity itself, that the one would be three and the three would be one. Now, God has in His image and likeness made the one that there would be two, that the two would be one. So, the way to properly understand man is as a reflection of the Trinity. So this is where I can alleviate you know, any, any uh, questions of misogyny or something like that. Are the three persons of the Trinity all equally divine? All equal in power, authority, glory, and worship? Yes, of course they are. Biblically, and we confess as much in the Athanasian Creed. But is there a distinction in role? Of course there is. Where else do we get that? Biblically and in the Athanasian Creed. Um, Does the Son beget the Father? No, the Father begets the Son. Um, Does the Spirit uh, proceed from the Son only? No, the Spirit proceeds from the Son and from the Father. So the Father is the one who begets, the Son is the one who is begotten, and the Spirit is the one who proceeds. So there's a distinction, a difference Uh, and an economy amongst the persons, an ordering amongst the persons. Let me put it this way. Does the the Father pray to the Son? No. The Son prays to the Father. There's that sense of hierarchy or order within the Trinity itself. So then that reflects on humanity that man and woman are equally given dominion over the earth. Uh, Man and woman are equal in their being creatures of God, equal, and they're being redeemed by Christ, equal, and they're being enlightened by the Holy Spirit, equal in their end salvation, and yet very distinct and even hierarchically ordered in distinction via economy. And all of these mysteries, the mystery of of anthropology reflects the mystery of theology proper, that is, the nature and essence of the Trinity, of the Godhead itself. Make sense? Okay, so that's our pattern, and that's how we're going to keep ourselves from falling into any kind of heresy. And I'm not doing any eternal uh, subordination of the Son, for those of you tracking that, art, that debate. What an obnoxious debate. I'm not doing any of that. Um, I'm talking about the Athanasian Creed, um, less than God with respect to his humanity, equal to God with respect to his divinity. Okay, that's my take on that. All right, so then, um, just back to Genesis 1, and now let's pick up at 27. So God created Adam in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. See the continuous play of the him and the them? the singular and the multiple, that's that's the Holy Spirit's wisdom. Where the grammar doesn't make sense, pay attention because the Holy... And the consistency doesn't make sense, pay attention because that's the Holy Spirit actually revealing something very important. I mean, you would full-on expect to see, on account of the second part of 26, let them, plural, have dominion. You would fully expect to see... So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created them. But you don't, it's him. Then, extrapolated from that, male and female, he created them. One of the big errors of our time, and the clergy are all infected with this too, is they think God made some sort of neutered man, some sort of neither male nor female man. That's impossible. It's a him. Whom God created and then from the him comes the her and thus you have male and female them but I've actually seen a pastor argue this I I've never been so embarrassed for him in my life that 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 Adam didn't become a him until there was a her <laughs> I mean here's someone who not only lacks reading comprehension but an imagination Like, Go ahead and try to visualize that. Visualize how that happened. Never mind. Okay, so we're noticing more things, more intricacy, more wonder than the feminists have allowed us to see for the past 70 years. All right, 28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, and it is them here, obviously, because you're not going to be fruitful and multiply... Just one. Be fruitful and multiply. How, do the, how does the fruitfulness and the multiplication happen? Knowing one another. Yes, knowing one another. So from the one come the two, and as the two become one, so another one is produced. Do you see the beautiful... I mean, it's just, it's just the beauty of the Creator. It's all of this symmetry and interweaving... From the one come the two. From the two, they can't return to one, and a new one is produced. And from that one joins another, and the two become one. And it's just, I mean, I couldn't picture anything more beautiful. That's just fantastic. Uh, yes, sir. Irenaeus makes a statement in the a Treasury of David Prayer that says, leave before the fall, Adam and Eve were purchased. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I guess we don't know because it's not disclosed. But the command went out right here after they were created to be put to a The first born was Cain, who was at, born after the fall. Mm-hmm.
0: So just- I mean, I would agree. I would. It's it's a bit speculative to be sure, but I. It would seem to me that there was no life conceived in her womb at the time of the fall. That would lead one to believe they were still virgins, would lead one to believe that, uh, yeah. And, and a, common, a common teaching amongst the church fathers is that the fecundity, the fertility was far greater than, um, than it is now. So because God wanted the earth to be fruitful and multiply and was blessing uh, the marital relations such that um, children were beget all the time. Yeah. So that's about all I can, yeah, offer there. I don't. I don't know. I guess I would generally agree with Irenaeus, and I would find him, to the best of my knowledge, in the mainstream there, mm-hmm. that they hadn't consummated their marriage till after the fall. Yeah. So that that would mean like the first knowing is like I think it's even like Adam knew his wife, uh, chapter four, verse one. That would constitute the first knowing, according to Irenaeus, and I think that that's the mainstream. Okay, so the them are to be fruitful and multiply by the two becoming one flesh once more, and to fill the earth and subdue it. Now look at this. The earth is already good, but this is the mission. And when we get to the helpmate part of why God gives Eve to be, and why Paul says that man was not created for the woman, but woman for the man, and she is explicitly called a helpmate, well, what's she supposed to be helping about? And this is the answer. This is the dominical command, and I and I think it still is. I think we've absolutely lost sight of this, that the dominical command is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, the earth is already good. So what are you going to subdue? And that's where you're going to move that benchmark from good on its way to perfect. God creates a world that is good, but not perfect. He creates men and women that are good, but not perfect. He creates everything in a state where it's going to grow into greater and greater maturation. So man is to is to make his mark, which is the divine mark, because he reflects the divinity in the garden and in the ordering of the garden as he orders it, and then out from the garden over the face of the whole earth. So that's the subduing of the good creation that god did under the order of and dominion of god and preaching and proclaiming his word so that is man's task and that can shape and form the way you look at your life you know the nihilism the post-fall post-curse nihilism is well if i do this it's all just going to decay and deteriorate anyway it's not going to make any difference but that's not the call of god that's out of our hands. Entropy is out of our hands. The curse is out of our hands. But the call is to labor toward that anyway. Whatever jurisdiction, whatever domain God has given you, and notice the domain, dominion, language again, that's where you want to imprint that with the image and likeness of God. So you want to be, particularly as men, secondarily as women, um, we want to be an imprint that, that image and likeness of God onto creation itself. And it's worth it whether it lasts or not. It's worth it, period. That's the mission, that's the goal, and that is chiefly the goal of man and chiefly the work of man to which woman is called to help. Okay, so we'll see that fleshed out a bit more as we go along, but this uh, the importance of this verse just cannot be overstated, and its it's foundational to who we are as human beings, it's foundational to this entire age. Okay, maybe for our purposes, that's enough. We could still go along fruitfully, but for our purposes, 1 Corinthians 11, that's probably enough there.
1: That, sir? Yes, sir.
0: Yes, sir. Okay. Mm-hmm. Outside of the garden of um, Eden, what was the earth like? I've, I've heard the theory that
1: inside the garden of Eden was the garden of Eden. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. But outside the garden of Eden was chaos. Mm-hmm. And God... And it had a need to be truthful and multiply, and spread the love of God to the earth outside the garden. Mm-hmm. Is that feasible? that true? I
0: think it's true to an extent, yes. I, so the same way that um, how could we imagine this? You know, if you were if you were a, a pioneer or, or a settler and you see this this beautiful uh, meadow and uh, forest. It's beautiful. It's good, but it's no place where you can raise a family and have your sons raise their families and their sons raise their families all to the glory of God. So you take that which is good and you perfect it. You give it order. So I agree. I think if you, I think even Eden was like this. To a degree, and maybe outside of Eden, even more than that, um, just wild that 's what we would say, so just wild and meant to be cultivated, meant to be subdued that 's the word biblically yeah, so that 's the the imagery, which is exactly the opposite of the environmentalists and the hippies, you know right If you uh, look at all this destruction, look at all this imprint of man now we could we could sympathize if it 's an abuse of the earth and a destruction of the earth. We could absolutely sympathize as Christians. But where we see man creating order, we should, we should look at that and see wonderful... You know, you're flying over and you see the checkerboard farm fields that feed everyone. I think, personally, that's a, that's a good thing. <laughs> that's, an, that's an ordering of land that other, otherwise would not serve man, now serving man and prospering man. I think that's, an, that's a, a dominion of the earth, a subduing of the earth that's good and blessed. Um, now, obviously, if somebody is you know, pilfering the earth and destroying the earth and and doing nasty things to the you know dumping pollution and toxins where they ought not, and it's going to cause all this, and we can, we as Christians can sympathize with that and say that's that's morally contrary to what God has given man to do. Yeah. But you were used he the
1: word chaos. It wasn't chaos outside of Eden because that that was all. All the birds and the fish and whatever—they were going in a natural order. So that's not that chaos. That's just nature that's, that's undominated un- by man and, yeah.
0: and no Untamed, wild, civilization. Yeah.
1: Chaos is
0: a yeah different different than than chaos as such because chaos would be like the tohu wabohu of the of the first chapter where everything is formless and void and impossible to grasp and not not in that sense good or at least not good from a from man's standpoint. So, yeah, I, I would agree. I would say untamed, wild, in need of man's imprint, that divine imprint of man, of the image and likeness of God, putting that forward. Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. Okay, yes, please.
1: You asked the question about whether God has a, had certain physical
0: characteristics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure we got the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> it was a rhetorical question. I, I think that I think that God looks like a man. I think that God looks like Adam, and I think we can press that point even harder. Uh, okay, so this would be fitting and apropos of the season, the incarnation. Okay, so hopefully this won't this won't bake your mind too much on a Monday night. Um, God alone is in eternity. Our destination is an eternity. To be an eternity is to be without time, without change. That's definitionally God. Any creature who blasts off into that new eternity ceases to be a creature and becomes God. So that's eternity proper. When we talk about eternal life, we're still talking about change, a succession of events, an experience of time that just goes on forever and ever, from one age unto the next, right? That's what we mean by eternity. When we talk about how God exists, let's say, in eternity, um, that's that's something inherent to God. What does it mean when God becomes flesh? Flesh is something time-bound. Born of Mary in time, begotten of God outside of time. So then, that means that as the incarnate one, he is both bound to time, born around the year zero or two or six or whatever you think, and also, though, born and yet man outside of time. So he is always and ever the incarnate one. What would be the proof text of this? Well, you could very easily grasp hold of something that Christ is crucified before the foundation of the world. Not Christ is crucified roughly 30 or 33 A.D., Christ is crucified before the foundation of the world. There are many other such statements to this effect. By the way, almost all the drawings you see, we'll we'll see, um, remember God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? Upon what is he walking? Or when the word appears to the prophets, and then the word speaks to them, what does that word look like? Um When the angel of Yahweh appears, what does he look like? the messenger of Yahweh, what is he? He always looks like a man. He is a man, he looks like a man. Um, they never mistake him for anything other than a man. So what does God look like? God looks like a man um, that's and what's the shape of his uh What's the shape of the place where he uh, resides in heaven? What, or maybe I'll put it this way. I'm being a little too clever. Upon, Where is God in heaven if you just look at the scriptures? A throne. What does one do with a throne? Brand sits. sits. <laughs> what does one have if one Sits legs and a derriere! and that's and that's talking in specific like if you think of the imagery of uh, revelation it is always the father is always described as the one seated upon the throne the father is in the, it, it looks just like Adam the son we know looks just like Adam because he's incarnate and he is incarnate in time and outside of time before the foundation of the world and in the time of the world. Both are absolutely true. They have to be true. Otherwise, you don't have a true incarnation. If you don't have eternal God enfleshed in the in the time-bound flesh of Jesus, you don't have a true incarnation. You've got something else that's easier for your mind to grasp, but you don't have a true incarnation. I thought
1: you were saying God the Father has a body.
0: No, I, I'm not saying he has a body. I'm saying if you see God the Father, he is the one seated upon the throne. If he's seated upon the throne, he has legs, and he sits. And there's armrests on the throne, no doubt. So he has arms, or even told he has arms. In um, where is it that the uh, in Daniel seven, I believe we can find it fast enough. Here's a description of the Father and the Son, and I'll show you the God's own description of Himself. We know that God is spirit. We know that God is entirely other. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have an appearance. That God doesn't reveal himself in an appearance. And again, that appearance can be Jesus. Sure, that's one angle and a very biblical one. But that appearance can also be appearance in and of itself. Um, Daniel 7.9 is interesting to study in this vein. Okay, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing, how does a spirit wear clothing, how does a spirit take its seat? It does, but it, it does so in the form of a man. Or really, rather, Adam is the image and likeness of God. And the hair of his head, like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Do you remember Jesus saying, from now on you will see uh, on the clouds or coming in the clouds, the Son of Man, or the Son of Man coming in the clouds? I wonder what he's talking about. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So we can be certain then that this figure is not identical to the Ancient of Days. You have two divine figures here. And notice, well, the other one is sitting on his seat and wearing clothing and has a head. This one looks like a Son of Man, so we already know what he looks like. The Father and the Son look like human beings, or rather, human beings look like the Father and the Son. Adam is made in the image and likeness, and Eve shares in that because she comes from Adam. Make sense? So very clearly, do I think that God has uh, uh, boobs? No. (laughs) No, I don't. I think that God has male parts, or I think the image of God has male parts, and uh, that's because we're the image and likeness of God. Yeah, and then woman shares in that because she is flesh of our flesh and bone of our bones, and she is one with man. And there's uh, then a sharing in that, and that's what uh, Genesis one twenty-seven is pointing to. But there's a there's a sharing in it, but there's also a key distinction. God is not some neutered like you know the Kendall that your daughter played with, and she drops his drawers, and there's nothing there. That is, sadly, what most have posited God is like in our gender-neutered days. Yes?
1: On the subject of God having a body, (laughs) if we look at Exodus uh,
0: 24, verse 9. What do you have there? Exodus 24, 9? Yes. Okay, go right ahead. Sure, please. Do you have it ready?
1: Oh, it's has uh, been Moses and Aaron, Nadab, and Abime. And 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. It was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God, they beheld God and ate and drank.
0: Yeah, thank you. So yet another theophany, this one on the mountain, really the, the peak, uh, I mean, just the, well, quite literally, the mountaintop experience of the Old Covenant. And here they see God, and he has feet, and he has a hand, and they beheld him, and all throughout this section, he is a him. They didn't behold it, or they didn't behold a spirit. I mean, in a sense, they did. That's where the language gets kind of wonky. They beheld a spirit, but what does the spirit look like? A man. <laughs> we've gotten this idea that a spirit looks like nothing, but that's just not true. I mean, the same way we've gotten the idea that a soul looks like nothing, or the soul looks like a ball of light, or whatever we conceive of, but these things aren't true. The soul looks like you. That's right. Oh, one, oh. one second. Okay, we got, i got two buzzers being hit at the same time. We'll go with Aaron. <laughs> yes, sir. Please. talking about the
1: you hear that.
0: Yeah, don't worry about the pre-incarnate Christ so much. I mean, it's it's true enough that from a time-bound perspective, we can say there was a time in which he wasn't a man, and now there is a time from which he is. But that's a time-bound perspective, and I don't know how helpful it is right? because even prior. So let's go with that. Even prior to his incarnation, what does Jesus look like? A man. A man, all the way through the scriptures. Well, and he says, "Let us make man in our image." Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And the image and likeness is encompassing. Yeah, entire. That's my take, and I think that's the Bible's take. Okay, I'm going to try to go order of operations. I had a hand online here. Yeah, please.
1: Yeah, I I understand uh, this passage from seven thirteen. I understand your reasoning there, but I mean, I've talked to. S- mormons and i've used that idea that they say god joseph smith said god the father had a body he's six foot two and he lives on a planet named columb but the, the main thing there is that he has a body so i've always used that with mormons saying well god is spirit god the father's spirit does not have a body no one can see but god and live according to moses right and uh but the the, the, the point is my my ESV Bible here, the, the note on Ancient of Days references see Revelation 1 7, and that's clearly talking about Jesus, so they've got it wrong. You're saying.
0: Yeah, well, there's an there's an interplay, and John is doing his typical John thing where he likens Jesus to the Ancient of Days. Why is John doing that? It's in John's Gospel where Christ says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So to see the glory of the Son is to see the Ancient of Days. But that's Johannine, and that's how to reconcile that. That's John being John. It's his way of theology. It's absolutely true. Yeah, I, I mean, I hope you're understanding. I, I, am a, I, I could not possibly be further away from Mormonism. Um, also, we shouldn't say that the Father has a body. Um, he appears bodily. That would be a better way of putting it. Um, he doesn't have a body. If you, you know, tried to do a DNA test on the ancient of days, I don't think you'd get very far. Okay. So we're not interested in saying the father has a body. Now we know the son has a body. Not interested in saying the father has a body or the Holy Spirit has a body. Um, but what we are interested in, in seeing biblically is that when you look at the father, you don't see nothing. You see one seated upon the throne. And you see one who has figures that resemble that of a man. Okay, so you know the same. This this will take us into a kind of metaphysical uh, way of thinking, Um, but you know to some degree it's it's helpful. We as human beings obviously have. have bodies, and those bodies have certain characteristics, but even our souls have certain characteristics, and souls can be seen. There are examples of that in the Bible, where souls are seen. In Revelation, we're seeing souls. And then, um, likewise, angels that are ministering spirits, that's what an angel is. Ontologically, an angel is a spirit, not an angel. Angel is its office. Angel is a messenger of God. So, ontologically, an angel is a spirit. And those spirits yet can appear bodily. So this should be hopefully frying some of our really simple Sunday school-based categories and getting us into a little more metaphysical maturity. And then we can see that at the height of all of this is God who is spirit and yet appears in shape and form. And that shape and form is very much akin to the image and likeness of Adam. And then by extension, the image and likeness of Eve, of man and woman. Just to a closer degree man than to woman, but man and woman both share in the image and likeness in general. Just specific, it's Adam. That's why God doesn't show up with all the sexual organs or all the sexual characteristics of uh, both sexes. So who was... uh... Who 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 was wrestling
1: Jacob? And I mean, when, when it comes to Christophanes, that's what I'm familiar with mostly. And who who was wrestling Jacob and put his hip out of socket? And and who was at the Oaks of Mamre with uh,
0: Abraham? Yeah, Luther's rule is basically the one I follow. If unless you have clear and explicit evidence that it's the father, you should think it's the son. So I think it's the son who is wrestling uh, Jacob. Yeah. And especially because, um, what do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful? And since we're in Advent, remember from Isaiah, the names of the Christ? Yeah. And, but not just wonderful counselor. There should be a comma between those. And grammatically, there is a comma between those. Wonderful is one title. Counselor is the next title. So Christ is called the wonderful. And he says, why do you ask my name seeing that it is wonderful. Wonderful is the name of Christ. So there would be definitive proof in this case that uh, Jacob is wrestling with Jesus. It's just great. <laughs> it's just the best. <laughs> Israel means one who wrestles with God, and we are the new Israel, which is why that's, you know, so coming up this Wednesday, we'll talk about tentatio, and tentatio is just a, fa- a, a fancy Latin word for wrestling with God. <laughs> God promises... God afflicts. God puts it in in our hand and then tries to take it away. Fathers do this with their sons. Why? Because we love them and we want to make them strong and we want to have fun with them. And we want to teach them they can trust us. And we want to teach them how they can be strong and have fun and teach others. So that's the whole point and purpose of wrestling. Jesus wrestling with Israel, God's wrestling with us, us wrestling with our own children and those we love. Okay, my alarm went off. I'm out of time. My MacBook's uh, battery is telling me I've got maybe less time to have the Lord's Prayer, but let's have it anyway. And uh, let's just say, um, after we get back from our break, which will be, um, so the 8th, we're off. It'll be the Monday after that. We'll jump back in. That'll give you plenty of time to digest all this, think on all this, uh, Google it up, research it, and we'll come back and reconvene and, and chat all the more. All right, let's close with prayer.